where is our James Connolly? Where, oh, where can that brave man be? He is gone to organize the union That working men might yet be free Where, oh, where is the citizen army? Where, oh, where can that brave band be? They have gone to join the great rebellion and break the bonds of slavery. James Connolly was born in Edinburgh in 1868 to working-class Irish parents. He leaves school after primary school, I think at the age of 10. And I think that really only makes his subsequent achievements kind of on the literary and the political fronts all the more remarkable. To be honest, not a lot of hard evidence exists about the kind of subsequent decade. Um, it's generally been presumed from uh, Desmond Grease's biography onwards. They served in the, in the British Army. You know, that's repeated by Donald Nevin and others. Quite recently, Conor McKay cast sort of some doubt on the evidential basis. So yeah, I think what we can say is that Connolly grew up in a, a working class Irish part of Scotland. This background, it shaped his experience as a religious minority, as a member of an exploited class, and it, it really engenders a real class hatred of capitalism. And it's, it's really stultifying effects on people's lives and people's prospects. And unlike many, Connolly actually does something about that. And that's something's the subject of my biography. We'll come on to it in more detail. But I just think, you know, Connolly deserves a treatment that does justice to his complexities, really. He, he, he was a Marxist who took issues of national liberation extremely seriously. He had his own innovative take on that and things to say. And also what struck me first introduced to Connolly kind of as a teenager is he doesn't really easily fit into any of the trends that you know are familiar to us sort of a labourite trend or a sort of more orthodox Marxist Trotskyist or or sort of syndicalist um, anarchist politics he had a very unique fusion of elements and I think that's what set me off on a sort of journey to kind of give that proper look how did Connolly first become involved in working class politics and what was the character of the labour movement as he found it? By 1888, Connolly's in Dundee in Scotland and he joins the, the Socialist League. So people might be familiar with that from William Morris. And you know the League is just in the process of splitting into Marxists and anarchists. So if, if you read News from Nowhere which by Morris, which was published in... Uh, 1890 uh, it, it begins with a kind of meeting where there's you know, like four people and five different views and stuff like that so I think that's the context um, we know that from John Leslie who was one of Connolly's early mentors he recalls Connolly joining an open-air meeting and Connolly's brother John John Connolly is also a member of the socialist movement so that's another influence on Connolly and it's a way way into the movement I think it's important to sort of keep in our minds that 
the relationship between the socialist movement and the wider labour movement in this period is, is not at all clear cut and in, indeed it's highly contested. So this is the period of new unionism, the new general unions forming, catering for dock workers, uh, gas workers, general labourers. You've got the match women in Bow in East London. You know, it's much less exclusive. It's much less based on craft. And it, it holds out the prospect of a, a mass trade unionism in Great Britain. And from very early letters from Connolly to his wife, it shows that he's involved in this. He's kind of supporting a group of workers on strike. On the character of the socialist movement, it's really in it, it's still in its propaganda phase. So, you know, spreading, spreading the good word through meetings, through newspapers, really establishing socialist ideas in the sort of public mind you know, for, the, for the first time since Chartism, really. Um, the Socialist League, which I mentioned, it, it generally had quite a, I suppose you could call it like an ultra-left position, it sort of saw Parliament um, and strikes as kind of not really that relevant, um, and it's, you know, all about preparing for the kind of the great day of the overturn. The Social Democratic Federation, which is the largest group, it it's more keen on elections and sort of electoral propaganda than the Socialist League, but it's very standoffish and sectarian towards strikes. So some senior leaders, Harry Quelch, Henry Hindman, they see them well, as, as pointless, but also even as harm, harmful, which kind of strikes us as odd sort of today. Um, then you've got kind of groups in between. So the groups around Frederick Engels, so like Eleanor Marx and people like that, they really do throw themselves into the new unionism movement. So, you know, many of the new unionist leaders, Ben Tillett, Tom Mann, were, were socialists. So, yeah, I think just to sort of sum up the labour movement, it's, it's moving out of that period of craft unionism and political subordination to, to sort of liberalism and liberal politics. The socialist movement's still in a sort of early propaganda phase, but it's really kind of working out its orientation towards the wider labour movement. And we're not really at the period quite yet of labour representation and the Labour Party, although you know that that's coming. Reading um, Pierre Bruet's book on the German Revolution, there's an extensive chapter describing the SPD and how it was kind of a state within a state almost. So yeah. you get a context for what Engels maybe meant when, or what the rest of them as well kind of thought of in terms of a model of a working class organisation should look like. And one of the things that really struck me is how it was kind of a labor aristocracy in shape like it was it was very ideologically sophisticated metal workers who would have been certainly different in character from the new unionism you're describing you know do you think Engels had any kind of reflections on how different the the new unionism was from what he was used to in terms of a mass workers party or I think he was quite excited about it um so if you read all the kind of letters um he 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 was really dismissive of the social democratic federation and I think the reason there's, there's personal stuff as well. So Heinemann basically rips off Marx without attribution, uh, uh, like attributing um, the source of the ideas. And he does that for a kind of like jingo reason that he, he doesn't think that g ideas from Germany will sort of get wider acceptance in Britain. So he has to kind of put an English spin on them. So Engels really hates that. So he sees, he sees like Morris is like good, but not up to the task of becoming like the leader of a socialist movement. So he really sees these two groups as kind of uh, as, as 
sectish, especially the SDF, and dominated by intellectuals. So when he does see new unionism coming, he's like, finally, this is the basis of sort of a mass movement. I, I'm not sure if he reflects too much on the sort of sociology of that and how it compares to the SPD, um, but he was definitely enthusiastic about it. And that just made me think as well that if you think of the SLP activists, a lot of them, you know, some of them were quite skilled workers, skilled engineers, um, had a degree of education. So I think when you're talking about the, the kind of the leaders of the, the, the cadre of these organisations, maybe not a million miles away from your sort of politically sophisticated metal worker. What was the Second International? What, if any, was the nature of the relationship between it and the organisation Connolly co-founded on moving to Dublin, the, the Irish Socialist Republican Party? And did its positions, tactics or tendencies uh, align with or did they significantly diverge from the broader trends at work in the larger body? So the, the Second International, as its name would suggest, it was a, an international organisation of, of socialist parties. Um, the, these parties themselves were sort of national organisations. So I've, I've heard it kind of referred to as a, um, a sort of inter-nationalism, so like a collection of sort of nationally integrated um, political organisations. And I think what was novel about it is if you kind of cast back to the first international which Marx was involved in, the International Working Men's Association, that cast the net a bit more widely because it was at an earlier stage. So, you know, uh, James Stevens, the Fenian, was involved, uh, followers of Mazzini, liberal-leaning British trade unionists. Second International is different. It's a bit more programmatically uh, tight. So it adopts a very much like a political socialist perspective, you know, that wants socialism through capturing state power. And that, you know, that differentiates it from the anarchists who leave in the, in the early years or driven out rather and the Irish Socialist Republican Party which Connolly co-founded in some ways it's kind of sits within the the mainstream of what you'd expect you know it's got a, a focus on elections and and um, it has after 1898 has the Workers Republic so it's newspaper it's got a minimum program of reforms or policies such as free education uh, land nationalisation and so on but it's also got that kind of maximum programme of socialism that you see with the SPD or the Social Democratic Federation, they call it the Workers' Republic which is a kind of Irish inflection but it's the same thing where the ISRP is different the SDF in Britain uh, is like a home ruler party um, the labour movement in, in, in GB tended to sort of in deference to the Home Rule Party sort of raised that demand, whereas the ISRP is obviously for an Irish Republic. And where it starts to differentiate itself within the broader Second International is one flashpoint is at the turn of the century. So you've got the, the Dreyfus Affair in France and you've got a big sort of anti-Semitic sort of Catholic clerical uh, reaction to that, which was kind of threatening the foundations of the French Republic and um, Alexander Millerand, who's a, a socialist, actually enters a, a kind of cabinet of national defence with the Republicans in France. And that's a, obviously a bourgeois cabinet 
there's a general in the cabinet who was responsible for massacring the the communards after the Paris Commune, and that is really controversial stuff. So the the right of the SPD think this is great because they, you know, want to enter government themselves, but the left, you're talking about Rosa Luxemburg, Lenin, uh, the American socialist Daniel De Leon, they're really horrified, and again, sort of a hint of what's to come. Kautsky's kind of in the middle and tries to broker a compromise, and the ISRP, they're it, they're firmly on the left of this argument. They're they're, they're against going into the cabinet, and that's what really marks them out and it, it also brings them into the orbit of Daniel de Leon and the Socialist Labour Party in the states which becomes you know quite important for Connolly's development so yeah they, they, they find themselves um, on that side of the argument and they actually go to the 1900 Paris Congress of the International where this argument plays out and they vote with the, the left delegates. Connolly himself doesn't go um, sadly so we're Sort of denied the sort of experience of of seeing how he would you know relate to some of the sort of international figures that we know, but you know they, they did send delegates and that's that's the way that they voted. You document Connolly's move to the United States and his engagement with syndicalist rank and file labour politics and first in the context of the Socialist Labour Party and then with the International Workers of the World. One of the points that I found most interesting about this stage in the book is that. You cover ground that wouldn't be completely alien to the likes of, for example, Noel Ignatiev in his famous study, How the Irish Become White, or Became White. You kind of talk about how the Irish, being among the first wave of immigrants to the United States from Europe, were almost a kind of labour aristocracy. They were well integrated into democratic party machines and the craft unions. Did Connolly adapt his ideas significantly to American particularities, specifically with regard to these divisions in the working class? And how would his vision of race and craft versus um, rank and file unions compare with that of the broader uh, USian left? Yes, yeah, so I, I think Connolly's time in America is really quite crucial to his his sort of development as a, a socialist and a trade unionist, and I think it establishes a lot of themes which are lasting. Because one of the things about Connolly is you have to sort of be quite sensitive to the, the periodization because he he's not a reflective academic like this is these strategies and tactics are practical for him and as he's facing new movements and new debates and new challenges he he changes his mind he develops um, but I, I think the American experience was quite lasting he, he gained quite a lot of very valuable trade union organizing experience you mentioned the IWW I think one of the things that he encounters was the role of craft unionism and the American Federation of Labour and you know Connolly saw how that was it was undercutting solidarity and it was you know leading to you know workers losing strikes in a lot of cases so he, he comes to industrial unionism and becomes involved in the industrial workers of the world and I think more than that as well he he is a sort of follower of Daniel de Leon at this point and What's common to De Leon and also to Connolly is that they also see the industrial union as the kind of scaffolding of the the future worker state. So they're moving away from a very sort of statist conception of just kind of capturing the existing state, maybe at a parliamentary level, forming a government. You know, they want it to be based on economic organisation and you know the 
commonalities there with French syndicalism, although Connolly's more political in that he you know, is still a member of a party and he still finds a role for elections. And in terms of where that puts him in the American left, that's really in the kind of class struggle industrial unionist wing of eventually he finds himself in the Socialist Party of America. So big Bill Hayward, Eugene V. Debs are the kind of like leaders of that wing. I think Connolly is broadly a fit into that. And, you know, you ask about um, racial division and racism. And I, I looked into this quite a bit and it is a bit of an absence, I, I, I find. So, you know, the AFL has got racially segregated locals, especially in the South. There's not an awful lot or anything on that um, in the harp, which is Connolly's paper at the time. And sometimes it's quite clear, like from context, that he's writing about black workers. So when he's talking about sharecroppers in the South, for example, but the focus is very much on the economic exploitation, not on, I suppose you could call it the super exploitation of black labour, which is overlaid with racism. And I think that in that too, that reflects kind of common sense, even in the left of the socialist movement. So they're anti-racist. They're not, you know, some, the right wing of the socialist movement are not kind of exclusionary and racist at times. But I think even while uh, abhorring racism, they have in Eugene Debs' word, no special program um, for black workers, which kind of captures the specificities of what was a hugely racialized capitalism. And it's maybe unfair to make that charge because on Connolly as an individual, because that that was common to the movement, and arguably it wasn't until the Communist International that 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 deviation was rectified in many ways. Who was James Larkin? Um, what was distinctive about his contributions to Irish labour politics, and in what ways did his approach to labour militancy shape uh, what was the 1913 lockout? And were there significant differences between him and Connolly in terms of their approach to leading the struggle? So Larkin, yeah, absolutely, like, crucial figure. Um, like Connolly, he was born to Irish parents in on the island of Great Britain. So for Connolly, it was it was in Scotland. For Larkin, it was in Liverpool. And Con, uh, Larkin's kind of formative political experience, he's a member of the Independent Labour Party. And he, he works on the docks. He's actually promoted to foreman, um, but... He was, I think, the only foreman who got involved in a strike, I think it's 1903, and he loses his job. But in that strike, he impressed the National Union of Dock Labourers who bring him on as a trade union organiser. And that's what brings Larkin to Belfast in 1907. And very famously, he hits the ground running. He organises the, the, the famous um, Dockers and Carter strike. And some of the tactics and strategies and sort of style that we associate with Larkinism they really come into play in, in that strike. You know, solidarity action, uh, the so-called um, blacking of goods, mass mobilisation. Uh, he, he famously has a kind of non-sectarian labour band um, uniting uh, Catholic and Protestant workers. And I think one of the essence of Larkinism is really it elevates that principle of solidarity to the level of a very in aggressive industrial strategy. Um, or a strategy to kind of industrial class struggle. And that that does shape the lockout uh, in 1913. So Larkin, he, he forms the Irish Transport and General Workers Union when he falls out with the National Union of Dock Labourers. 
he's seeking to organize transport workers, general laborers and the unskilled and organize them into an all-encompassing union. And that really terrifies the employer class in Ireland because they were used to what Emmett O'Connor had called the, the butchers, bakers and candlestick makers of the Irish TUC unions, which were largely craft unions. And Larkin hits them with this aggressive form of strike action and the solidarity strike. And that's really the background to the lockout. You know, they they really want to break Larkin and break the transport union. And I think maybe the difference, as I would see it, between Larkin and Connolly is with Larkin, this is a very sort of like raw and instinctive sort of form of of politics and organising. And Connolly shares the essentials of it, but he maybe approaches it from a more like cool, intellectually sort of rounded way. You know, if Larkin sort of is doing this in practice, and Connolly is too, Connolly is also theorising it. So, you know, socialism made easy, which is a bit earlier, is all about the kind of relation between economic struggle and, 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 and politics. And, you know, Connolly writes, what is the sympathetic strike, which he attempts to kind of put it in context, like early modern peasant struggles and things like that, which you don't really find with Larkin. But, you know, they complement each other in a way, even if they're kind of in competition. And another reflection is that the both of them are able to shape, well, Larkin especially, and then, you know, Connolly takes over the running of the lockout when Larkin's imprisoned, but they can really shape the transport union because they're really operating in virgin territory. So, you know, debates that you have in America or GB about you know, dual unionism, you know, do you form separate socialist or industrial unionist unions, or as Tom Mann argued, do you bore from within and kind of seek to kind of structurally change the existing unions? It's less relevant in Ireland because you've got craft unions and then you've got not very much. So the, the transport union can kind of come in and, and sort of take things by storm. What were the origins of the home rule crisis in Ireland? What was the character of the opposition that a form of, uh, of uh, local government to, to Ireland would have, would have faced from unionists? And how did Connolly understand this opposition? How did he seek to position the Irish labour movement relative to it? So the proximate origins were supposedly inconclusive 1910 um, elections which in, in Britain, which leave the Liberal government reliant on the uh, Irish Parliamentary Party, the Home Rule Party. And, you know, this is the third Home Rule crisis. So there was one in the mid-1880s and one in the early 1890s. So in a longer context, it's, it's, it's shaped by a growing desire for self-government um, in Ireland. Some of that reflecting the kind of traditional desire for self-determination, but also, I think, a growing middle class and an idea that in some sectors that the Irish almost deserve a seat at the table within the empire, which is, is definitely something you get um, with John Redmond, for example. And the, the unionist opposition to that, well, the landowning and uh, capitalist class, um, they, they organise a mass resistance. And I think it also contributes to kind of the, the Ulsterisation of unionism, which had been uh, an all-Ireland movement, sort of certainly in the 19th century. And the unionists, especially the Ulster unionists, they, they, they drill openly in a kind of military fashion. They import arms, bringing the, the gun back into Irish politics, as it's been described. 
they they're in an alliance with the Conservative Party, who more than happy to stir this up to destroy the Liberals, and they threaten um, to establish a provisional government in Ulster if Home Rule is enacted. And yeah, famously they have the Solemn League and Covenant, so they they have a kind of mass mass petition, basically pledging sometimes in blood uh, to to resist Home Rule almost by by any means. And you know Connolly is obviously opposed to this. I think I think he's also a bit baffled by it and the the passions that it releases. And you know I think it strikes him as irrational. So I think you you've quoted on Twitter the the bit of um, William McMullen, you know, the Belfast socialist, who who, who recounts kind of Connolly um, saying of the Covenant that. that the guy, the, the orange man should frame it because his, his children will laugh at him. And he also talks about like the wooden guns of Ulster. But of course, those are replaced with real guns and then it gets serious. So, yeah, there's a tendency. Connolly kind of is, he's analysing something as it's rapidly developing. And at the, at the beginning, he sees it as sort of the last gasp of an old dying landowning ascendancy movement. But it also becomes a sort of modern form of reactionary mass politics. Um, which is more more challenging and has greater implications for the possibility of working class unity, especially in places like Belfast, which of course is the most industrial developed bit of the island, uh, is where the labour movement is, is strongest economically. Um, so that has implications for socialist politics. I think Connolly, his famous sort of contribution is, you know, the description of, of the moves to exclude Ulster, um, so essentially partition is a carnival of reaction. So Connolly puts it particularly poetically and strongly, but that was a notion that was shared amongst the Irish labour movement at the time. So if you read the Irish Trade Union Congress debates in 1914, most people are against that um, because they, they know, as Connolly argued, that it would, it would isolate um, the you know, socialists in the north. Um, it would also introduce a sort of poison into working class politics. And, and that's why it's a kind of carnival of reaction, north and south. So that's you know, it's not something, it's not a special innovation of Connolly's, but he he expresses it with the greatest clarity. He also argues that home rule with partition would be worse than no home rule um, because of that dynamic. Um, and I think you know that's a quite a, quite an apt comment. You lay out an extensive reading of Connolly's theoretical and historical works, most notably Labour and Irish History. What were his aims in producing this text? What were some of its most central arguments and what prominence, in your view, does it deserve to have in our understanding of Connolly as a, as a political figure? So the interesting thing for me, I think, about Libra and Irish history is that it's really a summation of views that Connolly has rather early on. Um, so some of his, one of his early articles is called... Um, Ireland for the Irish, I think it is, and it's in it's in Keir Hardy's um, newspaper in about 1896-1897, and that's collected into a pamphlet called Erin's Hope, the, the the ends and means, and that really establishes some of the sort of foundational themes about you know the limitations of just political independence when you, you've also got the the rupture. Of colonialism with the old Gaelic social order, 
yeah, so he's, he's serialised this thing for more than a decade um, in the Workers' Republic and the Harp, which is his American paper. So he's been really working on it for a long time. And I think it, it does reflect his sort of view of history and his kind of his conception. And his main conclusion is that um, only the Irish working class remain as the incorruptible inheritors of the fight for freedom in Ireland. And that's for two reasons, really, that, you know, the as the working class develops, the non-working class forces tend towards conservatism um, and become tied to imperialism. And you know, Connolly he, he outlines the betrayal of those the constitutional nationalist sacred cows in particular. Uh, he's particularly hard on Daniel O'Connell. And as I kind of say in the book, you know, this has led some, especially that kind of um, dynamic by which the non-working class has become more conservative, that's led it to be compared with, you know, Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution. So I kind of play around with that notion in the book a little bit. And I think my conclusion there is that it certainly bears a familial resemblance in the sense that, you know, it's, it's foregrounding working class agency in the fight for national liberation. It's arguing that the Irish bourgeoisie is unwilling or unable to do this itself. So it's certainly in close in spirit to that theory, certainly more so than, say, the kind of the Stalinist two stages kind of idea. You know, first you have nationalism and then capitalism develops and then you have socialism. Um, but I think, you know, it's also misleading because, you know, Connolly, he reaches his conclusions through a very different argument and a very different set of steps. So, you know, Connolly claims the oppression of Ireland is, is political, but it's also social. So you need to win political independence, but you also need to uproot um, what he saw as a, a foreign British uh, capitalism, which disrupted the uh, Gaelic social order. And secondly, he, he argues that that social system is a sort of variant of, kind of primitive communism. And thirdly, he's got this kind of view of of Irish history, he kind of characterises it as a, a struggle between almost like two competing forms of property, so like the communal and the private, um, and, and you get that in Aaron's Hope and you get it in Labour and Irish history. So you've got what he calls the kind of feudal capitalist system on the one hand and a kind of Gaelic social order on the other, and that's represented at various times in Irish history by what he calls the forces of, of Labour. And he, he casts that much more widely than what we would understand as kind of the modern working class. So that's, you know, peasant struggles, the land league. Um, and he kind of reads that sort of internal conflict almost across several centuries. And it's quite a useful teleology for him because it, it can kind of place the labour movement and socialism as almost a natural endpoint of a long running, centuries long struggle. So in that way, the kind of national revolution and the social revolution fuse and sometimes it's hard to know how much of that was the kind of argument made to win over republicans and those kind of who came up in that historic struggle and how much of it is genuinely kind of Connolly's view I think when when action and theory get fused in such a way that it's almost academic what the difference is what did the outbreak of war do to the Second International? And how did Connolly's strategic or political outlook change in its aftermath? The main point is most parties in the Second International, they, they end up backing their own government. 
So, you know, every national party with some valiant exceptions says, yes, well, we know we're, we, we made a, a pledge in 1912 to meet the war with a uh, revolutionary general strike, but you know, that's not happening. The working class is, is, is backing the war. And in any case, our country is under attack. So this is a war of sort of national defence for, for, for us. And you know, Lenin famously skews that sort of argument. Um, very early on, Connolly does too. Um, he is deeply disturbed by this development. And I think, you know, going back to the earlier question about the Irish Social Republican Party, the internationals long been a sort of guiding star and a real like, materialization of that principle of socialist internationalism. So you can see in Connolly's writings in August 1914, um, he's quite distressed and you know everything that, that the international had been building and working for and sort of the gains that it had been accruing in terms of numbers and support were really, really threatened. And I think what, what that does to Connolly is, in, in one way he becomes pessimistic but in another way, he becomes, I suppose, voluntaristically optimistic and more open to a sort of insurrectionary politics that he really had disdained and really taken the piss out of uh, when it had come from the IRB. And I think, you know, he, he thought that that could catalyse maybe some sort of uh, dynamic in opposition to the war. And it's, it's interesting, too, depending on... He, he writes in The Irish Worker and he's also writing in Forward, which is the Glasgow ILP paper, and in some senses, you're getting a, an analysis of the, the war and the international movement as a sort of generalised crisis of imperialism and the need for sort of working class internationalism. But increasingly, you're also getting notes of, you know, if a German army lands in Ireland, we'd be justified in joining it and are more open towards the sort of IRB tradition. And, you know, those two things are coexisting in the early bit. And then I think as the war develops, the sort of socialist internationalism becomes more for, for, for propaganda and the operative logic of what Connolly's doing is is sort of seeking a block with the Republicans to launch some sort of national rising. One of the most controversial aspects of Connolly's legacy uh, was the question as to whether or not he threw his lot in with the bourgeois democratic uh, blood martyr Irish nationalism by joining the IRB in the Easter Rising. And even to this day, even though every party of the Irish left would, of course, want to claim Connolly's legacy, they all have to wrestle with this to some extent. Whether or not Connolly advised members of the Citizen Army to um, hold on to your guns is much debated here because it would indicate some recognition on his part that his allies in, um, in 1916 might not be well disposed towards the cause of labour in a future Irish Republic. Based on your understanding of the sources, what was Connolly's calculus in dealing with the IRB and the volunteers? You know, this is the, the most torturous bit, really. Um, uh, I wrestled with this. Um, what, what I kind of came to is just from a close reading of his articles and um, the Bureau of Military History recollections of sort of people who were there and were, were speaking to him and working with him. I really think that he was incredibly worried that the, the war would essentially lead to the destruction of the Irish labour movement. Um, he, he saw the defence of the Realm Act. Um, you know, his newspaper, the Irish worker, was closed down. That's why the public had to be printed in the basement of uh, Liberty Hall. The Munitions Act, essentially, you know, muzzling the trade unions, 
the threat of conscription. So it's really um, a sort of iron heel sort of de descending that he's, he's worried about. Um, and, you know, added to that, he's concerned by the extent of voluntary enlistment into the British Army. You know, he calls it economic conscription, you know, conscription because, you know, people join because their economic circumstances are so dire. And I think he sees that as sapping uh, a sort of latent revolutionary energy towards national liberation. So those two things, he, he wants some sort of drastic action to reverse that trend, um, even if it's uh, the action by an armed minority. Because he, he does throw his lot in with the IRB, but even in October to December 1915, he's talking about the Irish Citizen Army, all sort of 200 or so of them doing it themselves to catalyze something. And, you know, the the IRB, or rather the, the faction of the IRB around Tom Clark and Sean McDermott, sort of panic at this uh, and really want to reach out to Connolly to say, actually, we're planning something. It's it's We've got it worked out. It's going to be much bigger than what you're going to do. And please don't upset the, the apple cart. You know, please join us. So I think, you know, once Connolly, once Connolly discovers that in... January 1916, he, you know, that's what he wants, but on a, a bigger scale, really. Uh, he wants some sort of action. And I think, you know, the hold on to your rifle stuff, that, that does indicate a, a disquiet and maybe a recognition, but obviously that is contested. I, I have found people who've reported very similar things being said. Um, so I, I think he did say it or something close to it. But I think the fact that we're kind of even 100 years Hundred and eight years on, debating whether he actually said it, it's definitely not the dominant thing that he was trying to get across in in those kind of late late stages. What is your impression of the strengths and weaknesses of the literature that has been published around Connolly, both primary and secondary? Um, do you do you think that your work addresses a niche in the more biographical writing that your predecessors haven't touched upon? Yeah, I mean, I, ho I hope so. Um, so I think. Uh, Lorcan Collins' book is, is really good um, as like an accessible way into Connolly and I've definitely recommended that to people um, before mine came out as, as, as something to read. I think we've, we've mentioned Desmond Greaves' book. I find it much too loaded with sort of political conceptions. So I, I, I think that, you know, Greaves as the sort of Connolly Association sort of theorist, you know, linked to the British Communist Party, is bringing a lot of baggage to it and a lot of sort of popular frontists, sort of 1930s Stalinist politics. And it really seems to be trying to fit Connolly to that. You know, I, I try to do it the opposite way around. Obviously I bring my own conceptions, but I, I really wanted to challenge them and, and try to stick rigorously to what I, what I was finding. Um, so the Greaves one doesn't really sit right with me sometimes. Very excited about Conor McCabe's collected works coming out in the summer, because I think you know that's at the root of some of the difficulties in the secondary literature is that Connolly has been very badly mistreated in terms of the subsequent publication of his works. Um, the William O'Brien, um, longtime leader of the Irish Transport in General, was his literary executor, really closely guarded those writings and was happy to publish them with unattributed edits and in, in, a, in a partial way to give it like a misleading um, version of Connolly. 
and you know that hasn't really been rectified up until now you know even the collected works that um sip2 funded uh, donald nevin to do has been far from a collected works and it basically kind of copied a lot of the edit, edited stuff that william o'brien had put out with desmond ryan so yeah i think we can really hopefully see Connolly fresh and and get a more rounded understanding you know, I, I tried to synthesise what I thought was good out there um, with a return to sort of the, the articles in the original newspapers and the letters in the National Library and stuff like that. Um, but I certainly couldn't have done it without the, the, the good work that has been done, um, even if I kind of take it in a slightly different direction and try to interrogate you know, Connolly's place in the international movement in a bit more detail than I think has been done. How has the book been received so far, uh, whether positively or negatively? So yeah, I think it's been it's been received pretty positively um, insofar as it has been received, I would say. So there was quite a critical uh, article quite early on in Labour Hub, which is a sort of British Labour left website. Not fully sure what they were arguing, to be honest. Um, I mean, just some discussion in uh, Workers' Liberties publications about, especially the debate about... Um, Connolly in, in Germany during the war and and whether some of the you know there's some summary conclusions such as you know Connolly's opposition to the war maintained a kind of consistently internationalist sort of character which have been queried which is interesting and quite a good debate um, I would really appreciate more engagement from the, the, the wider left whether it's critical or um, positive so I really wanted to kind of spark a debate and a more sort of sober discussion about Connolly and his legacy and, and what we can learn um, in a kind of open and democratic fashion. So, uh, you know, I really appreciated uh, Paul Murphy giving me like a, a jacket quote, um, but it would be good to hear, you know, from Rise and Socialist Worker Network and the Socialist Party and, you know, and other comrades, um, if, 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 if I could... If the book could spark a wider discussion, that would be really good. You might have some awareness of the fact that the far right growing and is and is and is organizing pretty successfully in a lot of areas has um, made some nominal attempts to uh, to to co-opt and distort aspects of the of the revolutionary legacy of the signatories in the 1916 rising. And there's no one who comes out of this in in a less recognizable form than than James Connolly. Of course, I've seen people. Um, invoke him as uh, as someone who is out that day in order to protect the white race. Um, facts are obviously not something that's germane to this at all, but I'd be interested to hear any reflections you might have on the centrality that internationalism had to um, to Connolly's politics in general, but maybe his his nationalism in particular as well. Yeah, I mean that's horrifying to hear, and you know if if I criticise Connolly in the book for having that American second international sort of colorblindness to to questions of racialized capitalism. There's absolutely no evidence at all um, that he was motivated by anything to do with the, the so-called white race. But as you say, facts are not really relevant to that argument. It's obviously a mendacious sort of distortion. Connolly 
was always um, always an internationalist and always republishing stuff from across the second international across the world uh, followed the sort of struggles in India um, had a, a real hostility to the British Empire um, on Irish nationalists but also on anti-imperialist and democratic grounds and how anyone would square, square that with sort of what the, the far right are saying and then kind of anti anti-migrant sort of politics that they're espousing um, it's a real stretch and yeah, yeah solidarity to the, the left in Ireland you know dealing with this nonsense it's, you know it's, it's quite alarming it's it's a, a fight that has to be had Go. 